Well, good evening and welcome back to our study of, we're actually studying a letter in the New Testament called the first letter to the church uh, in Thessalonica. It was a big city at that time, had some new believers and we're kind of working our way through that letter. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for the willingness for all to open our hearts and our minds and I pray that you would pour your love into us, pour your knowledge into us, that we might be transformed in our hearts and that it might transform our lives as well. Father, I do pray for everyone here, everyone hearing the sound of my voice. I pray for all of us, Lord. We need your comfort, we need your strength, we need your help. And pray, Father, that you would strengthen all those who are grieving, those who are ill. All the needs that we have, we lay them at your feet and we trust you to be sufficient in any and every circumstance. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you may have one or two questions on this subject, so that is the line to text your questions to during class. And just a reminder, very brief uh, overview. So in your New Testament, many of the things we call books of the Bible are actually letters. Not all, but many of them. And are letters written by Jude and James and John and Peter and Paul to various churches to answer questions, correct problems, encourage them, explain things to them. The letter to the Thessalonians was written shortly after Paul visited there. He was there about, let's call it about 50 AD. So think about that. If the resurrection happened in 33 AD, this is not very long afterwards and Paul's traveling all around the known world uh, preaching the gospel. And so there were some believers in Thessalonica, but he couldn't stay there long because some of the Jews were jealous of the converts and they ran him out of town. And so by the time he goes on through Greece and he gets down to Athens and goes on to Corinth, two huge cities at that time, and he begins to preach, but he's worried about the Thessalonians. He's worried about the hostile environment that they are in. He sends Timothy back and Timothy returns and says they're holding on to their faith, they've been faithful, and Paul pens a letter to them. This is what we call the first letter to the Thessalonians, first Thessalonians. And in that letter, he's encouraging them and then he goes in the second part, chapter four and five. Chapter one, two, three is encouragement, thanksgiving. Chapters four and five are instructions or answers to questions. And so our lesson tonight is in chapter four, verses 13 through 18, and he is answering a question that they have asked Timothy, something he did apparently not have time to explain fully. And so let's read this passage, and then we'll talk about what question is he answering and how does he answer it. He says, but I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. That's a euphemism for people who have died. It's very common in the ancient world, probably common today as well, but basically uh, those who have died so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So I'll stop there and just we'll just walk through this passage. He's basically answering the question here we are Christians, and since you have left, someone or some people have passed away, they've died. And so they thought, well, if you're not alive when Jesus returns, then do you get to go to heaven? I mean, is it kind of like a, you know, must be present to win kind of a thing, you know, like a raffle. And so in all seriousness, they had various beliefs about what happens after death, if anything, but their thought was, well, maybe you needed to still be alive. 
So he obviously hasn't had time to talk about some of those things, and so he wants to answer that. It's the, one of the interesting things is that all cultures of all times, everybody, historically speaking, has grappled with the question, what happens when you die? This is not a Christian question. This is a question of all humanity from all time and various cultures have answered it in various ways. And their culture answered it in various ways as well. But the universal uh, reason, I think, for that to happen is this idea of, is there hope to see my loved ones again? Is there anything beyond this? And so this idea that you might not grieve as others who have no hope, that's an interesting phrase, but it's, he's right on the money. And I'm gonna show you some ancient, uh, these, I just plucked some things out of some ancient uh, documents and so forth. Here are some ways that people in that culture in that time thought about death. Uh, Theocritus, this is from one of his works, says hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. What does that mean? It means what they basically thought in standard Greek and Roman mythology, they're not the only myths around, and not all Greeks believed this, but the standard idea was that when you died, your soul went to a physical place under the earth called Hades. And there was a God that ruled the underworld, and his name was Hades. And there's a lot of mythology around it, but just to give you an idea of what they think happened is you went to Hades, and it was sort of, I said, used this example before, but imagine your life is 3D, full color, and you go to a 1954 black and white set. You know, no color, no nothing, very flat. That's what Hades was like. It wasn't really a place of punishment. It was just a place where the dead went, and it's like, well, life's over, there's no fun here. I mean, it's just blah, very bland idea. And you would wander the underworld. And so there's no hope. This is what you're going to do forever. Uh, this is an interesting little epigram for a man named Antipater. The experts in astrology, he's writing this, tell of an early death for me. So he's consulted an astrologer and they said, you're gonna die young. Though it be so, I care nothing, Seleucus, his friend. I, all men have the same way down to Hades. If mine is quicker than others, then I guess I'll just be face to face with Minos the sooner. In other words, I, I have no hope, life after death, we're all going to Hades. If I go early, well, that's just bad luck. Uh, this is found in a lot of inscriptions and this encompasses the ancient idea of death. I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. And the whole idea was life is meaningless. I mean, there was a time when I wasn't born, now I am, I will not be again, and honestly, there's not a thing I can do about it. It's a very apathetic approach to it, just kind of a hopeless approach. This last one is really interesting. This is a personal letter. It says, I am as sorry and weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. But nevertheless, against such things one can do nothing, comfort one another. This is kind of the cold comfort of the ancient world and really the modern world as well. It's hard to know how to comfort someone if you, depending on what you think happens after you die. 
And so the idea of comforting those who are living was something they really struggled with. So their thought was Hades. Other people uh, at that time, but really a lot more today, think you just ceased to exist. You came into existence, which they cannot explain how that happened, but then you go out of existence. The problem with that is, first of all, there's no particular evidence one way or the other for that. Nevertheless, if that's what you believe, that's really difficult for the people who are left. There's not much comfort in that idea. And it tends to be eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Kind of that sort of a philosophy of life. So there are a lot of views about what happens after you die. And Paul says there are a lot of people out there with no hope of anything after life. Next phrase, so he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed about those who have died, so you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And this is the essence of the answer to the problem of life after death. It is a fundamental core belief of the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me show you a passage uh, this is probably a very early uh, creed or creedal statement. Any of you grew up with catechisms? You know, you would say the catechism, which is a shorthand way of saying your core beliefs, or maybe you recited the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. They're shorthand ways of saying, I believe this, I believe this. This is probably one of those early statements. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That little piece right there is a fundamental article of the faith of the gospel. If you get Jesus as a good teacher and he dies on behalf of the people, you don't have the gospel. I mean, it's a noble thing, but it sure isn't gonna guarantee anything about your life after death. If he's just a good teacher, or even if he died for your sins, that's a nice thing to say, but how does that make any difference? Ah, but God raised him from the dead, which is God saying, I can raise you from the dead. You too will be eternal. This is the core of the gospel. And by the way, still today, if you don't hear that, you have not heard the gospel. There are a lot of distortions of the gospel, but this is at the center of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised from the third day. And then he goes on to give some evidence. He appeared to Peter, Cephas was his uh, uh, Hebrew name. Then to the 12, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. And the reason he said that is, go check it out. Though some have died, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul. And you could read about that in the book of Acts. And so this is core teaching and kind of the essential of the gospel. And this is what Paul reminds them of. He said, because you know that Christ was raised, you have the hope of eternal life. In fact, as a follower of Christ, you have the confident expectation of eternal life, which is really a better way to understand hope in the New Testament. It's not so much a, oh, I hope, you know, that Houston can come back and beat the Phillies. You know, it's not one of those, who knows who's gonna win. I just hope it happens, a wing and a prayer. It's not that idea, it's that confident expectation because of what God has said. And so this idea of having hope is based on the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. 
So he reminds them, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Jesus those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. What he's saying here is, I wanna make sure you know, this is not my opinion. I'm telling you what the Lord told me. That we who are alive when Jesus comes will not go ahead of those who have died. In other words, not only are the people who have died able to participate in the resurrection, they actually will be raised and then we will be caught up with them. And so Paul is kind of giving them an idea of what happens after you die. And I want to answer that question as best Christians understand it. But the one thing is for sure, if you die in Christ, you will live with Christ. So the essential teaching is, do not worry whether you are alive when Christ comes or you have died when Christ comes, your soul is eternal and you will be reunited with Christ. That's the fundamental answer to their question, okay? So he's answered basically their question. He's gonna give them a little more details, but as far as what they asked him, he reassures them that those who have died will actually be raised first. Well, so we have a question, okay, what happens though timing-wise? We know it's true that we will die. We know it's true that we will be raised. How long and what happens in that interim period? There are two major ideas that Christians have come up with, and that's based on hints in the, in the scripture. I wanna make you aware that this passage is absolutely adamant about the answer to those who have died will be raised. There's no confusion about that. That's the main point that Paul wants to get over. The details of, well, how long, when? What are we doing in the interim? Are we going to purgatory like the Catholics teach and work off our sins? Or you know, what, what's happening in the in-between time? The scripture is not very clear about that. Why? because that's not an essential question. And, and the script, that's just true about a lot of things. It's like, you know, if basically, it's, we, we are that way about a lot of things too. You wanna know the main things first that really matter. And then you might be curious about the details, but the details pale in comparison to the main idea. And the main idea is the assurance of the resurrection. So then Christians have said, are there any hints in the scripture about what actually happens after we die. Well, the first idea is called soul sleep, is the common way of thinking about it. And that basically says that when you die, your soul essentially goes to sleep. And the only reason sleep is used in that context, and by the way, that's why that euphemism of falling asleep for being dead, is the idea that when you sleep, you don't really know what's happening and you really don't know that time is passing. So for you, all you know is you died, you went to sleep, and the next thing you know, you're being awakened. You know, Jesus is calling your name and, and you're raised and you don't know if it's been one hour or 1,000 years, nor do you care, right? That's the whole idea of sleep. It comes from passages like this. This is uh, 1 Corinthians where it's also talking about the resurrection. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first of all the dead. 
He's raised from the dead. For as by a man came death, Adam, a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ they shall be made alive. But in his own order, Christ first, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, whether dead or alive, followers of Christ. So when you look at this, you realize that, okay, here's, this appears to be giving you a timeline. Christ has been raised, and when he comes, all those who belong to him, and then comes the end where he is placed over the kingdom of God and all things on earth worship him. So if you look at this in a very literal way, the answer would say, well, Christ was raised, we die all different times through history, but when he comes back, we're raised, and then Christ rules for eternity. So what would that tell you? The implication, this is why Christians believe in soul sleep is, you die at different times, but you all wake up at the same time. And so the idea of sleeping or soul sleep. Now that happens to have implications that most people aren't crazy about um, in the sense that what that means is that when your loved ones die, they don't immediately go into the presence of God. Now the next thing they remember is, is seeing the face of God, but they are not in heaven looking down on you, whatever, they, their souls are asleep awaiting the resurrection. Make sense? So that's one view. Second view is that you immediately go into the presence of God. And so here's a passage that a lot of times people point to that say, well, this hints that after you die, you immediately go into the presence of God. Paul's saying this to the Philippians, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He's in prison, chance he might die. He said, which I choo uh, shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ. That is far better, but to remain here is more necessary on your account. Now, the point of this passage is to say, for us, for we as Christians, dying is not a bad deal. I mean, you get to see Christ. But living might be necessary, and as long as I'm here, Paul says, I'm gonna be about my father's business. I'm gonna be about God's business. But even though that's the main thing, some people look at it and say, yes, but he sure speaks like when he dies, he's immediately going to go to heaven, gonna go see Christ. And so one view is that your soul sleeps and then at the resurrection, they awaken. Anybody that's here, you will still be here. And the other view is no, those who belong to Christ immediately go to heaven. So your loved ones are in heaven with Christ. Now that begs an interesting question. What if that's not the direction you're going when you die? No one to my knowledge, has really got a strong opinion about, yes, and when you die, if that's not the direction you're going, the next face you see is like, oh no, you know? Oh gosh, Satan is so ugly. And so, nobody really cares much about that. In fact, kind of the standard thought is, is if you belong to Christ, you go see Christ. If you don't, you sleep. And then in Revelation chapter 20, where you have the big ultimate judgment, a lot of people think the Christians, see, the Christians wouldn't be there. If you think you go immediately to heaven, they're no Christians in Revelation 20. 
so what are we doing a judgment for? You've kind of been prejudged. It's not like you're provisional. You know, I mean, that would be awful. It's like you go, you die, you go to heaven, and Jesus says, well, judgment isn't here, but we think you're gonna make the cut. <laughs> and so you can be here until Revelation chapter 20 when we do the judgment. You are provisional, all right? All joking aside, most Christians, the only way to make sense of that is to say you do go to heaven. And so in Revelation 20, the only people being judged are those who are being condemned. Revelation 20 doesn't read that way to me, but understand, if that's kind of an implication of this if you do. So what's the big difference? First of all, it's not the major point, but the idea is what does actually happen? Well, Christians have two ideas. One is you go to sleep, next thing you know, you wake up and you're being raised from the dead. Or you immediately go into the presence of Christ. And the scriptural basis for that on both of those are hints rather than just absolutely dead clear. Remember, he was absolutely dead clear about the resurrection, but the others are inferences. So I'm not sure that would be something we would have a serious argument about. Questions about that? What about those who died before Christ? Yes, so what about people who died before Christ came? Uh, they're just, they're out of luck. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> A couple of major ways of thinking about that, okay? One is the idea that people are judged by the, the I hate to use the word dispensation, uh, by the um, era in which they lived. So, for example, you can read in Romans 1, and you say, well, what if I grew up totally pagan, didn't know much about God or anything? Romans 1 actually kind of deals with that. It says for there are things that can be known about God that are apparent. In other words, what the thought is, you are judged based on what you do know. And so it's apparent that there is a God and there are things wired inside us that all human beings knowing that, know that murdering people, stealing stuff is not a good thing. So one school of thought would be, then suppose you're under the law of Moses. Well, were you faithful? Did you keep the law of Moses? And when I say keep the law of Moses, I don't mean you never made a mistake. The law of Moses doesn't mean you, you didn't think that you weren't gonna break a commandment or you weren't gonna sin, but did you make the sacrifices? Were you faithful to the covenant, the agreement that you had? And so there's how you would be judged. And then of course, in the time of Christ, you would be judged by whether or not you place your trust in Christ. So one view is that you're judged based on what you know. Now that's conjecture. The scripture doesn't say that. The second view is a little bit more interesting. There are a couple, there are two cryptic little passages in the New Testament about Christ preaching to the dead and so there is this idea that when Christ uh, dies on the cross, then Saturday he is in the tomb, and you know that the creed says he descended into hell. That's the creed, not scriptures. And the thought is he went and he told the gospel to all who had died before, and some had faith and some did not. So those are two, I'm not giving you an exhaustive treatment here, but those are two conjectures on how that might be. The one thing that you can be certain of is God is just. 
and God will do what is just. He is still loving, he is still good, he is still just. And however he deals with that, he will do so justly. But those are two ideas about what might be happening with people that died before Christ. Lots of people are concerned about the thief on the cross and what Jesus said to him. Yeah, don't be concerned. It was really worked out well for him. Uh, but <laughs> that's a good question. So the, uh, well, in any details, or do we need to talk about paradise or are we just talking about the whole idea of him going to heaven? Specific, today you will be with me. Right, today you'll be with me in paradise. Gotcha. Meaning heaven. Did he go to heaven? Did he wait? Yeah, here's the tricky thing about, again, this isn't clear, but let's analyze what we know. First, he doesn't use the word heaven, which is interesting, but not necessarily conclusive. He uses a word uh, that's more like Garden of Eden kind of a, a word. And when he says, today you will be with me in heaven, if you just read that face value, that's what it says, case closed, he went to heaven with Jesus, right? Of course, Jesus didn't go to heaven that day, but let's not quibble, all right? Let's not go do the Western mind thing, like which is it, you know? Jesus is raised on Sunday, not on Friday. So let's just go with this a little. And I think what Jesus is saying, and I don't think this settles this, but this is probably better evidence at least that well, when Jesus was raised, maybe he, he went then, more the immediate presence idea. So if you like that idea, you like that verse. But again, I say that not in a cynical way, I just mean there are hints in the Bible. It's really hard to be conclusive about that. But yeah, that's, that's an interesting passage that today you will be with me in paradise. Probably implying that you will indeed be with me in heaven. The point of that is less, of, again, let the scripture say what it wants to say. I'm not saying he may not be talking about the timing, but the obvious point of the thief on the cross is it's never too late. And what it takes is to place your trust in Christ. It's not behavior. It's you're saved by grace through faith, as Ephesians 2 says. The point of that passage is that anyone can turn to Christ and Christ's mercy can cover your sins. Now the question then is, well, when did he go to heaven? It's actually a secondary question, so I wouldn't read too much into it, but it does tend to favor the immediate presence more than it does the soul sleep. Do the interactions that happen at the Mount of Transfiguration have uh, relevance in this discussion of whether or not people are with God or asleep? These, you guys have good questions. You're little Bible scholars. Well, it, it isn't compelling to me, but that's a really good point. Throughout the scriptures, you will see people return from the dead. They show up after they're dead. You know, this is not like Obi-Wan Kenobi you know, comes back to Luke after he's dead in some kind of ethereal thing. These people like show up, right? So on the Mount of Transfiguration, he sees Jesus talking to Elijah and Moses. And so is this a vision? Are they really there with Jesus? I would argue that there's no reason to think they weren't literally there talking to Jesus. So it does lend some credence to the idea, well, maybe heaven is already populated and it isn't a matter of waiting. Now, the passage in 1 Corinthians implies, well, we'll all be raised at that time. This implies, well, maybe they're already there. So I, I agree that that is probably some evidence that, well, there are some people who are awake, so to speak. They're not sleeping. 
So if you want a definitive answer, I would love to give you one and I'm happy to give you an opinion, but the scripture's not definitive, is it? The one thing it is definitive about is don't worry about it. God will take care of you. I think the next thing you're gonna know is, oh my goodness, here's Jesus. And he said, oh, by the way, it's been 2,000 years. And you're like, man, I feel great for a 2,000 year old guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the way this is gonna play out is just be, be assured of that. So the, uh, the, probably the thing that I remember that was a hurdle to me, because it scared me to death. When I was little, and you know I was raised a heathen, so not like seriously good theology, but when I was little, I was told that when you died, you went to heaven, or at least the people that were going to heaven went to heaven. I mean, I was taught that there, were, there was a hell. But you would go to heaven, and that, you know, uh, grandmom and granddad are looking down at us from heaven, and I thought, oh, that was like the worst thing you could tell a kid. <laughs> It's like, uh-oh, I'm gonna have to answer for a lot of stuff. You know, now they're gonna know I'm the one who set the cat's fire on tail, uh, tail on fire. You know, I mean, you know you're gonna have to explain things. I doubt very much that that is the case. So if that bothers you like it did me, I really think if God is gracious, and, and I, now I'm not joking, I really am being serious. If God is gracious, then our loved ones are not watching us. Uh, because I think it could be very heartbreaking at times. And so I don't find any evidence of that. So if people are with Christ, they are in the presence of Christ and, and may very well be awaiting our arrival. The only other thing I would say to you, and I'll say this last, because oftentimes it sounds like a cop-out, but I don't mean it to be. There's no linear time outside this universe. Do you know what I'm saying? If indeed, now this is just Christian reasoning. If indeed God created this universe. God is outside of time. Time is a function of, it's one of the four dimensions in which we live. We would be foolish to think that the spiritual realm is bound by the same restrictions that this realm. This is just a created universe that God has made. And it's, you know, sometimes it's a nice place, but it's nothing like heaven. It's nothing like the spiritual realm. And God is outside of time. And so there's this, and this will explain a lot of the scripture, is the idea that for us, we think in linear terms because we are bound by time. God is not bound by time. And so there are passages that God makes things happen and speaks as though they were, even though they are not. In God's realm, they are. You understand what I'm saying is once you're outside of time, it's all playing out in front of you. God has foreknowledge. Well, yeah, he sees the whole picture at one time. It's sort of like the difference of you go to the movie and you see the whole movie and you know what's gonna happen. And it's almost like about 30 minutes in, you could stop it and enter the movie and start talking to the actors. They have no idea how this thing ends. And you start talking about things and they're like, that hasn't happened yet. Is that gonna happen? Are you sure that's gonna happen? For you, it might as well, it has happened, but it hasn't for them. Does that make any sense? I think we are living in that kind of a realm. And I, so I think some of the statements about God are a little difficult for us because God is not bound by the same four dimensions that we are. So for what that's worth, I think that will actually help make a lot of sense out of the scriptures. Does that uh, concept help explain how Jesus has died for sins we have yet to commit? Yes, that's a 
good, uh, that's not the standard theological line, but yes, I like that. Let's go with that. Uh, but uh, no, that's perfectly good. The idea is that Jesus' death, does that just cover all the sins that came to the point when you accepted Christ? And from then on, I, I thought this, by the way, also. This is how ignorant I was. When I was baptized, I thought, okay, you are now clean, your sins are gone. That lasted about a day. And then I started to wonder, uh-oh, what about the ones I've done since that time? I mean, I, my best efforts were to follow Christ, but we all sin, right? And I was concerned about that. And then, you know, the idea, the theology of Christ died for all your sins, and a good way to think about it is God already knows all your sins. Christ foreknew. Christ knew what he was dying for. And it's all the sins of all the people who would trust in him. And that burden was really, really heavy. So when you get to Maundy Thursday, remember that idea that he died for all the sins. By the way, this is just a pastoral aside. I don't want you to feel guilty, but I'll tell you how I think about sin. When I, at night, when I kind of do a little catalog and kind of praying, really more dialoguing with God and kind of thinking through my day and, and repenting of things, you know, I mean, just like, yeah, that, that's not the man I want to be. And, you know, you're just having a dialogue with God. It, I'm keenly aware of the fact that when I sin, it's like I go up to the cross and Jesus is hanging there and I go, I've got more. I've got more. Now, that's not a fair way to characterize it because Jesus already knew that and he already died for everything. But it helps me to think, no, I don't want to sin because I don't want to have to add anything more to that pile. And I just feel like that's, that is motivating to me. And it's like, if, you lo if I love Jesus, then by all means, uh, spirit, change my heart because I do not want to sin anymore. Okay? So that's the idea of what happens after you die. The scripture's not uh, very precise about that. You may sleep you may be immediately in the presence of God. I'm very comfortable. I've been to funerals where you hear both. One, it's, right now it's kind of common to say that your loved one literally is in the presence of Jesus now. But I've also heard people say, and so when Christ returns, we will be raised with your loved ones. Neither one of them discourages me, but whatever your opinion is on that, to me, that's a matter of inference. But I'm, I'm really happy about either one of those things, okay? Okay, so let's get on to, actually, that's the least interesting part of this passage. So then he goes on and he said, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this is uh, an interesting idea that Jesus is going to come again and he's going to come with an archangel and it's going to be a worldwide event. So he's already said, you're gonna be raised again. He's already said that the dead, those who died, are actually gonna be raised first. And now he's gonna give some more details and he said, this is all gonna happen when Jesus comes again at the second coming. This is, this might be the second coming. It just depends on your point of view on the rapture, which is where we're going. And so Jesus comes, he comes with the archangels and he base, and there are all kinds of, uh, there's several parables Jesus says about when my angels come and they will separate the wheat from the weeds, the, you know, those parables. The idea of Jesus comes with his angels, with these messengers. Archangels are interesting. They're like generals. 
They're like the ruling angels. You know two of them. Because in Jude chapter, verse nine, you see the archangel Michael is mentioned. And so Michael is one of the archangels. In Luke chapter one, verse 19 and verse 26, you meet another one. Uh, this is the second passage here is Gabriel talking to Mary. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent to God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so when he uh, went to talk to Zechariah, he said, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you. So Gabriel is an archangel who literally stands in the presence of God, and Michael is an archangel. If you remember our last series, I talked to you about the book of Enoch. It's one of those apocryphal books that's written between the Testaments. The book of Enoch is famous for just man, making up tons of interesting stuff about angels. And so in the book of Enoch, it names several archangels. And these are the names of the holy angels who watch. Suriel, one of the angels, Raphael, Raguel, you get Michael, you get Sarachael, and Gabriel. And so the two you know are Michael and Gabriel. The rest, this is not inspired, but one of the things in the book of Enoch, if you'd like to know all kinds of stuff about angels that was conjectured, this isn't scripture. The book of Enoch talks a lot about angels. By the way, when you read in Paul's letters, he's gonna talk and he's gonna refer a couple times. He said, teach people not to be chasing foolish ideas about angels and genealogies. That's what he's talking about. Don't get wrapped up in all this mystical stuff that isn't in the Bible. He said, those things will lead you astray. And so stick with the scriptures. But the idea of the archangels coming with armies of angels with Christ. He goes on then and he says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with the dead in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. This is the rapture. This is the only place you're gonna find the rapture. So the idea here is not will there be a rapture. This is gonna happen. Jesus is gonna return with an army of angels in the clouds and those who have died will be raised and those who are still alive will be caught up or snatched uh, the idea is, is a, it's a really interesting word, both Greek and Latin word, but the idea is you've been snatched up into the air, just pulled away. And so that's going to happen. The argument and the difference of opinion is, is this a separate event from the second coming of Christ? And I'll show you what I mean in a minute. But this event, whatever it is, is the rapture because this word caught up in Latin, so remember the New Testament about, oh, let's just round everything off. 400 AD is translated from Greek in which it was lit, written into Latin. Why? Because Latin becomes a universal language, not Greek anymore. And the Roman Catholic Church used that Latin Bible called the Vulgate from about 400 AD all the way up till Martin Luther, think 1500. And so they did mass in Latin, they read the scriptures in Latin, that's a lot of reason that people didn't know their Bible very well. They don't read Latin, right? 
But in Latin, this word is from a verb named rapio, and it's where we get our word raptor. So a bird that's a raptor is one that snatches its prey, clutches its prey. This is where the word rapture comes from. So it comes, the rapture is this event. And the reason it's called the rapture is because in the, in the Latin Bible, it's the rapture, basically, that word rapture. You're being caught up in the air. This is the idea of a rapture. The key idea is not does this happen or not. This is definitely going to happen. The key idea is, is it separate from the second coming of Christ? And we've talked about this a little in Revelation, but I'll go ahead and show you three points of view. Dispensational premillennialism. This is all about how does, how does this play out? When does Christ come back? It's basically answering the question, when does Christ come back? So here we are tootling along in the church age, okay, 2022. At some point, there's going to be a seven-year time of tribulation. This is a premillennial view. Not everybody believes this, but I want to show you where the rapture comes from. And at the end of that seven years is going to be the second coming of Christ. And you're going to get a millennial reign, and then you're going to get, this is Revelation 20. Uh, this is earlier part of Revelation 20, the millennium. And so you get this First Thessalonians is a rapture, and it's Jesus coming, grabbing up the Christians, and leaving and saying, I'll be back, kind of like the Terminator. And so this is the idea that the rapture and the second coming are two different things. Does that make sense? Everybody believes that 1 Thessalonians 4 is gonna happen. Some people think that's the second coming of Christ, but premillennialists say, no, that's the rapture. The second coming is gonna happen later at the end of the seven years of tribulation. And so, when people say, do you believe in the rapture? What they're actually asking is, do you think the rapture is gonna happen at the beginning of the seven years and Jesus will return at the end of the seven years? That those are two different events, okay? Everybody believes in the second coming. Here is postmillennialism. This is another way of reading the book of Revelation. Postmillennialism says, Jesus comes after this thousand year reign, the millennium that you and I, man, we could be anywhere in here, right? Depending on who wins the next election, that was a joke. But, you know, are we in the tribulation? Are we not in the tribulation? And at some point, Christ is going to return and there will be a final judgment. And when he does, it's gonna look exactly like 1 Thessalonians 4. He's gonna come with the archangels and all of his angels and we will be gathered up in the air and there will be a final judgment of everyone, some destined for eternal life, some destined for eternal destruction, so that this is one event. Does that make sense? I want you to be clear that all three of these views believe that 1 Thessalonians 4 is gonna happen. These are all Christian views, but there's a difference of opinion of when. Then finally, amillennial, which is uh, basically saying there's no literal thousand year reign, but for our purposes, we're basically living here. We are in the tribulation. We are in the millennium. We are in the time where the gospel is spreading and the kingdom of God is reigning 
in our hearts and wherever people believe, and then at the end, there will be a second coming and a final judgment. So it's one event. So the idea of a rapture is just limited to this point of view, where Christ takes the believers off, all this bad stuff happens, then he comes back and everybody gets judged. That makes sense? So question is, what is the rapture? The rapture is when Christ comes and we are caught up with him in the air. That's gonna happen. And it's called the rapture. Now you know why it's called the rapture. The key question is, are there two comings of Christ or just one? And so if you're post-millennial or amillennial, you believe there's just one. And that's the way I grew up, by the way. I didn't really know what a post-millennial or amillennial was, but I was just taught that, well, you're gonna live until Christ comes again, and when he comes again, the dead will be raised, and the books will be open, and the judgment will be done, and so go brush your teeth, or else you could be on the wrong end of that. Questions about this? Um, yes, questions about cremation. Is the rapture evidence that cremation is wrong? Is there other biblical rationale or evidence in support or against it? That is a great question. It's probably the most common question I've received since I've been a pastor about uh, this idea of death is really the idea of practical question of can you be cremated or are we doing something wrong if we do that? There's a lot of ways to answer that. My short answer is no, I do not believe there's any problem whatsoever with cremation. Why do I say that? Because the scripture doesn't speak clearly about that. But it's just think about it. There have been cultures throughout time and throughout Christian times that their culture was not to bury people's bodies. They burned people and they never had a question about it. And so you would have to say, it would have to be pretty compelling evidence in the Bible that said, hey, you better keep that body, you're gonna need it later, okay? Uh, to then you would have to say all those people that cremated couldn't. Or think about this, people that unfortunately in war, there is no body left. You know, does that mean then they can't be raised? Uh, that doesn't make sense. It'd be some, you'd have to have some pretty compelling teaching in the scripture for us to say something like that. And there's nothing even close to that there. Instead, you'd probably want to say that regardless of what you do with this body, you will get a new body. Read 1 Corinthians 15, the whole thing. It says basically we will be raised and we will be like him. This body is made to perish. We will all physically die. We will not all die a second death. Our souls will live eternally with Christ. This body is corrupt and it will die. But it's like a seed, Paul says. He said the seed has to die and go into the ground for the plant to come. He said, this is like a seed and our imperishable body is what we will be in. We will be in an imperishable body that lives forever, that doesn't die. You won't have those backaches anymore. I mean, you will get an eternal body. So all those things come together to the idea that this body is not essential for God to raise your soul and give you a new body. In other words, your new body won't be a total home makeover it will be a brand new body. So long-winded way of reasoning, but the scripture would need to be pretty compelling for us to say that no, you're gonna need this body later, and if you don't have it, you're out of luck. I don't think so. I think cremation, many Christian cultures have had cremation as, as a cultural uh, practice. 
But I understand it, it is a change in our cultural practice. And so I think that's why this question comes up. More people are cremated now than buried, uh, you know, in a casket, their body. It, it's just a cultural change is happening, and I think that's for the question. But I would reassure you that God does not need this body to raise our souls. But that's a very good question. Okay, so what's the, the perspective of the Left Behind books? Yes, Left Behind is definitely dispensational premillennialism. And the idea of left behind is that in this rapture right here at the beginning, I'm circling the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation, is Christ will come because the seven years of tribulation are about to happen and things are gonna get really ugly, right? Climate change, deluxe. And so Christ comes and those who are alive who are Christians, you will literally be poof, you're gone, you're snatched up, you're raptured. And the people that are left behind are looking around like, uh-oh, should have gone to church. In other words, it's a sign and it's gonna be like, wow, they're gone. And it's playing this idea out. The left behind books are fiction, but they're playing out the implications of this idea that all of a sudden, pilots and airplane, they're gone, oh man. Hope the copilot's still there. You know, bottom line is that you're gonna see these people gone and now there's gonna be seven years of tribulation. The left behind books, all my joking aside, are written to advocate this particular view. It's a Christian view. It may be right, it may be wrong, but it's a Christian view. And what it's advocating is if you are left behind, there's still hope. That is definitely true. Thief on the cross. That is definitely true. But that is all written assuming that this is what happens and then it's fictional, of course, and it plays out the idea of what would this actually look like. So left behind is dispensational premillennial view of the end times. Okay, would you like to share your personal belief or opinion about whether or not we will be raptured before the tribulation? Well, I'll give you an opinion, but again, I don't expect you to necessarily go with this because it's my opinion. I, I am, uh, I find amillennialism to best, in my view, to best reflect what the scriptures have to say. And I totally understand, and I'm very familiar with the readings of the scripture for premillennialism and postmillennialism, and I have absolute respect for it. This is not something that that would divide us or that I would argue about, my answer is, you might be right. But I find amillennialism best seems to explain it. And so I think that there is no, this will probably, uh, you guys won't be back next week, but I don't think of the rapture as a separate event from the second coming. I am perfectly comfortable with people that do, and my answer is, you might be right. Uh, so, but uh, that's not my understanding of the scripture. The rapture as a separate event has relatively, again, I'm not trying to critique this or criticize people that believe it. It really has pretty thin scriptural evidence. I'm not saying it couldn't be correct, but it has pretty thin scriptural evidence. And then I haven't gone into details about, there are actually different views about the rapture in this view, but that's too granular. But I would tend to believe that the second coming of Christ and the rapture, that's the same event, that Christ will come and we will 
It's, it's definitely true, but I think it's the same. And so I tend to hold an amillennial view of the book of Revelation. That's my opinion and my best reading of it. As far as what happens to you after you die, I actually lean toward the idea of the soul sleep, but again, I might be wrong. And it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it makes absolutely no difference. I'm not gonna wake up and go, hey, I thought we were gonna do the immediate presence thing. You know, I'm kinda, I'm upset, Lord. Why did I not get to come here right away? No, no none of us are going to do that. It's not an essential idea. The essential idea is that we will live eternally. And Christ's resurrection is indeed a guarantee of our resurrection. And so uh, my view is probably more of the soul sleep and we are all raised at the second coming of Christ. But again, I, I totally respect other points of view. And if you have one of those points of view, you might be right. By the way, uh, this is a sideline pastoral tip on marital arguments. You might be right is your friend, gentlemen. I mean, you need to say it and you need to mean it, okay? You actually have to mean it, but you should say, dear, you might be right. And uh, you know, it just takes the sting out of a lot of arguments, so. One last thought, and I wanna, I'll read the whole passage, but I wanna highlight the last thing because I don't want us to miss the purpose of this passage. We've talked about some conjectural things that are very interesting, and there's nothing wrong with that, as long as we don't be real dogmatic about something that the scripture isn't very dogmatic about. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are dead. That's the main point. He says, you don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. We believe Jesus died and rose again, and God will bring the dead with him. For this we declare to you, because God has told me, he said, that we who are alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will not go ahead of those who have died. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be raptured, caught up, snatched up, is a good translation, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will all, this is, this is the point, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is why he's answering this. This is, a, this is not primarily a theological answer, it is a pastoral answer. Of course it's theological in the sense that it's telling you true things about God, but his purpose in telling them the true things is do not worry, do not grieve as though there's no hope. Very pastoral passage. And of course the best pastoring is telling people the truth. And the truth is you will see your loved one again. If indeed you are united with Christ, we will be with him for eternity. That is huge comfort. You remember the first quote I showed you? It said, comfort one another. There's not much comfort with those who have no hope, but there's great comfort for us. Of course we grieve, but we don't grieve like people who have no hope. You know, and this is why it's so important that we be, do what God told us and go Speak the gospel to people. Go tell the good news so that we can be together in eternity with God. The beauty of this is he's answering this question with the truth to encourage them that you do not need to worry, you do not need to fear. Your destiny is in God's hands and God himself will preserve you into eternity. 
I also want you to think about the Thessalonians were encountering persecution, meaning they were disfavored very much for their belief. We too will see that. There are people in the world who are seeing it today, Christians to see it. We too will also. I don't say that because I'm making a political statement. I'm just telling you, as a student of history, this is going to happen again. How comforting is this? Remember when Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body and then can't do anything else. And this is what he means is, this body's gonna die one way or another. And if it dies in persecution, don't worry. Do not fear, do not grieve because your destiny, your soul, your eternity is in God's hands. And the interesting thing about this is, if you go live like you believe that's true, the rest of the world will notice. And so encourage one another with these words. Read this passage, get it into our head, let it soak into our heart and let it literally come out and we live like we are people who will literally live forever in the presence of God. What can man do to me? A lot of very unpleasant things, but nothing that will last. This is very, very encouraging. Well, you know what, they had another question probably like you do. They want to know what happens after you die, and I'm sure they were very encouraged by this. Their next question is, so exactly when will the world end? And I'll let you know that next week, unless it happens before then. So, I'll see you guys next week.